Hey Kyle, this is Coco. I'm tuning in from Half Moon Bay, California. I'm currently staring at the ocean and stoking on your podcast. Every time I listen, I laugh and I learn something new. So keep doing what you're doing. Currently, I'm working on my first book of poetry to be published. You can find me on Instagram at Your Cup of Tea Poetry. You get in the water. Hello, everyone. Hope you're all having a wonderful day from wherever you are listening to my voice. I'm doing well, except I have a calf cramp. You ever get those? I was running the other day on the beach, having a nice little yog with the wind in my face, the waves gently crashing against the shoreline, and then all of a sudden, my calf seized up. And I haven't been able to walk the same since. I've been taking magnesium over the last few days, but fuck, cramps hurt and they don't go away immediately. And it's something I've dealt with for the last couple of years, Uh, specifically when I'm surfing. If I fall on a wave, sometimes my calf will cramp up. So people say that it can be a result of dehydration, uh, lack of potassium. But if any of you have recommendations for me to figure this thing out, It is a debilitating pimp limp that I now have, Uh, but taking magnesium and we will get through it. Gearing up for the MOFAs, the Motherfucker Awards, Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm doing a comedy awards show with my buddy Chris Ryan, where we celebrate the companies that have done the most to fuck Mother Earth in 2018, and we're doing the show on December 4th in LA. You can get tickets at themotherfuckerawards.com. Thank you so, so, so much to everyone who donated on Patreon this week. Thank you to Ted Reckes, Bryce Pittman, Evie Lee, and Ian Presley. High five, guys. It's people like you who keep this show going. I love podcasting, and making a little bit of cash uh, helps me prioritize these shows i make them every single week and if you get value out of this show please consider donating um for now i'm still not doing sponsors and i love doing this so help me do it more help me get better guests um help me continue to drive all over california and bring these podcasts to you um so you can do that in the link below where i say buy me a cup of coffee on patreon because if all of you bought me a cup of coffee on patreon I would never have to ask for another donation again. And if you can't, don't worry about it. Just keep listening to the show. Uh, Giving the show a rating on your podcast app, on the Apple podcast app, helps so much because it bumps it up um, in the overall ratings and helps more people find the show. The only way other people will find the show is by you giving ratings and by you sharing it with them. So thank you to all of you who do that. This conversation is with Dr. Adi Jaffe. Dr. Jaffe is a world-renowned mental health expert and lecturer at UCLA and CEO of Ignited. He's also the the host of the Ignited podcast, that's spelled I-G-N-T-D, and he speaks on topics of mental health and addiction and is currently working on his first book. His TEDx talk addresses the issues of shame and stigma in mental health, and he's a badass. He is unafraid to talk about anything, and gosh, there's so much shame around addiction, and I would be willing to bet that 
every one of you listening to this podcast knows someone with an addiction problem. So the more that we can shine light on this, the more that we can um, give helpful tactics to people who need it, the better. So I really appreciate what Dr. Jaffe is doing. Uh, you can get in touch with him on Instagram, on his website. I link to all of that below. You can also get in touch with me on Instagram or on my website, kyle.surf. That's where all the podcasts are. That's where my book club is. That's where my documentaries are. Everything. Kyle.surf. Super simple. Um, thank you also to everyone who sends me these little voice memos. Thanks to Courtney for sending that in. Uh, you can just record something on your phone. Try and keep it under a minute. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and email it to uh, info at kyle.surf. Um, and that's where we can check them out. Info at kyle.surf. Don't overthink it. Just pretend like you're leaving me a message. And with that, I hope to see you all on December 4th at the Motherfucker Awards. And please welcome to the show, my man, Dr. Adi Jaffe. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. You know, milking the cows and all that kind of stuff. And so the way they ate was totally different. They would have a big breakfast, but that would have to sustain them because all they would get while they were working was like a snack. In the middle of the day, they would get a snack. That was quote unquote lunch. And then supper or dinner would come relatively early, like 5 or 6 p.m. when they were done because they would all go to sleep by 7 or 8 p.m. so they could wake up at 5 a.m. again the next day. So if breakfast is one of the biggest meals you get to have in the day, then maybe it's the most important meal. But if you're going to have a, like, I think we've made dinner that. Like, dinner is the thing where you all sit down and you have right. a meal. That's not how my, again, my kind of like grandparents level family, the way they did it was totally different. So, yeah, you need to eat a lot in the morning because you're about to go on a work day and you had to have that sustain you all day. Yeah, yeah. Are you a morning workouter? I am. I'm so busy now. It's, I hate it. But I used to work out six days a week. And now if I get four, I feel really lucky. Because from trying to start a new business, we've now got three kids. Oh, wow. So I got a five and a six and an eight year old and then a five month old. So what do you do most of the time? Um, we sit here in the dungeon. Maddie is sitting here with us. Oh, for um, working out. Oh, for working out. I, um, we haven't started doing that a lot together. Maddie, I'm going to start taking Maddie on workouts too. Um, I, I mean, I used to lift and then do kind of like hit workouts was my thing. Uh, for a while, I went through a running phase. I'm one of those guys that needs to just change. I think more than anything else, I need things to not be the same. Right. So I'll go lift heavy for six months and then get so bored of lifting that I got to go do something else. But I just got to keep it interesting. Yeah. Did you play many sports growing up? I played, I swam and played tennis growing up. And then when I moved to the States, I was 14 when I moved to the States. And then it was time to pick up like American team sports. Um, so I played football and you're sitting here in front of me. I'm not built for football. So it's kind of funny. I'm as a full adult now, I'm five, nine and a half. I got to put the half in there. Um, and you know, like 160 pounds with clothes on. So 
football was not a great fit for yeah. me. And what I got hurt a lot. Position you play? Uh, uh, wide, wide end. I was a receiver. Right. And, um, in the team that barely threw the damn ball. So it was like a good fit because all I had to do was block one zero. Stand there, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, in high school, you play defense and offense and special teams. You play everything, and so I would get hurt because not quite Napoleon complex, maybe, but I would want to prove myself, and so I would go in for those blocks and just <laughs> get railed. I mean, just Rudy, like, Rudy, <laughs> Rudy. I would just get dropped. Right. Um, you got spirit, kid. I'll give you that. Oof. We we uh we moved to Chicago when we first moved to the U.S. and um. I came. I mean, that was the first time I really saw weather like that. Um, growing up in Israel, you have summer, and then it gets moderate, like moderately warm, and then after that, you have a season of like a month or two of rain, and then it goes away. It's kind of like LA. It's not that different. And um, in Chicago, obviously, you got snow and and mud all throughout. You know, as uh, as the snow kind of melts, but kids go play football outside, and so we would do that on the weekends, and I loved it, but. There was this one time, this, this big kid, I'll never forget this, this big kid um, just pulled a run and he was running and I was, it was me and I'm pointing to about like four or five feet behind me was the goal line where if he would get past me, he scored. So I stood there, which is the dumbest thing you can do, right? Like if you're going to tackle, at least you have to come at the person and bring some momentum to it. I didn't, I got, I think I flew like six feet back. He didn't score. I was pretty happy about that. That's all that matters. But I couldn't even, I could barely get up. Like I got destroyed. So that's a, that's probably a relatively good metaphor for the way my life has gone in general is, um, whether it's working out or starting a business or whatever that is, um, I really try to go all in and then I notice I need to find a way to keep it interesting for myself or I'll give it up. Right. Yeah. And thankfully you got over a sport that could potentially cause brain damage. Yeah. Um, I mean, but you know everything like soccer can too. Yeah, with the with the because head, the, the head butts yeah. or whatever, right? Is yeah. that is that real? Like, is that a real thing that soccer players get brain injuries? I mean, frequently? it's probably not like CTE and not the like same football, way that right? You get in football, but I mean, you head the ball a lot, and if you think about it, at probably college and professional levels. You don't head the ball like you do as a kid. You know, right. as a kid, you just kind of barely tap it. Those guys, I mean, they go like an arrow. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those guys, like just going at a header, and they just run full speed to hit the ball. And yeah, it's 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 probably not like football, but you do it long right. enough, and it, it yeah. can cause damage. Yeah, and cause depression. I have a friend. It's it's not very common in big wave surfing, but you think about um, you know a wave like Mavericks when it breaks. Uh, Mavericks is up in Half Moon Bay the Richter scale at Berkeley will shake. So if you're between serious? the wave and the water right there, it can seriously knock you around. And How, how high do those go? The waves get to be 60 feet. Shut up. Uh, real big. Real Fuck. big. That scares, that scares me to just think about it. That's like bungee jumping on a surfboard. Yeah, I mean, you, you fall real far. And uh, after a few of those sessions, I've had the wah, 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 wah in the brain. You're like, man, it, did I, I feel like I just played Concussion. a big game of football. Anyway, I have a buddy who um, he's been surfing for a really long time, and he had a bad wipeout and uh, has suffered from CTE as a result. It's very uncommon because in surfing you know, those days only happen a few times a year so it's not like football where you're getting hit again and again and again but uh it was interesting that that's a potential for us and to and to see like the darkness that can ensue from 
those brain injuries. He I was mean, struggling you, with so much depression. Right. Yeah. You, you know more about that than I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think maybe this is a good, not segue, but a good way to talk about, we, we know a lot about neuroscience now in terms of the machinery, kind of like what connects to what and how do, how do they communicate, right? So cells and what chemicals are used to communicate and, and um, what areas of the brain are generally responsible for what. And it is a wonder, honestly. I don't care if you believe in God or nature, evolution, or some you know watchmaker that built you. It's a miracle that we're all functioning and that we can talk right now. The number of things that have to go right for us to just be able to have it, like for me to understand what you're saying, process it, understand how what a normal response to it would be, and then be able to deliver it without a million things going wrong along the way is insane. And so you think of putting a head on top of a 60-foot wave, repeatedly sort of crashing it. Just what other machine do we know in the world that could sustain that? that? Off, just yeah. think about that, right? Like my laptop is great. You drop it once from a 60-foot <laughs> yeah. wave, it's done forever. It will never function again. Yeah, spill some coffee on it, it's done. That's what I'm saying. So it's kind of magical to me how much abuse we can take. Yeah. Um, I wrote down a, I wrote down a quote before this. Uh, I thought of you because I, I checked out your TED Talk before this. The quote is, The human mind is the most complex and subtle expression of reality we have thus far encountered. Oh, I love that. By Sam Harris. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny. Sam was at UCLA about the same time that I was, and we never crossed paths, which is really interesting. Maybe it'll happen later on in life at some point. But, um, you know, it is, I mean, it's a wonder. I, I wonder if it's actually like that when you go into every field. I, I haven't, right? I've gone into, let's say, statistics pretty in-depth, neuroscience, a little bit into genetics, and then addiction and mental health has kind of become the place I've dived as deep in as any anywhere but i'm wondering if it's the same thing with surfing where you think that when you dive in deep you will understand it better but what actually happens is you get better at understanding just how little you will ever truly grasp this topic Right. Well, you start asking more questions that lead you up that river and all of a sudden you're like, you know, for surfing, for example, where do waves come from? All of a sudden that question gets you into a whole new field of meteorology yeah. and you realize how little you know. Well, and I know, I mean, a big part for you is the environment right? and you care about it because it, it's your home. Like the ocean is your home all of a sudden, whereas most of us live on land. So everything people talk about in the regular world is like clean up, like go and, you know, clean up the beaches or make sure you don't litter. All of a sudden you see the impact because you live in a space that most of us maybe visit every once in a while. Right. And I would imagine that for you, the more that you've researched the human mind, the more that you've researched addiction, you realize that it doesn't need to be that way. And you see people suffering. So you feel a, an obligation to try and explain it better to people because you know that it can really help. Yeah, I don't even think I could put that better. I mean, that is such a good way of looking at why I do what I do. Pretty much everything I say around addiction is like blasphemy for half the people that I talk to because they have just bought into the way we've looked at it now for about a century. And, you know, before that century it was even worse. So I don't even, I don't want to speak ill or, or, uh, have any negative kind of feelings towards the current standard way that people look at it because before addicts or alcoholics were just morally corrupt people who had been you know 
taken over by the devil essentially and by demons and at that point they were literally seen as not having control of themselves we now move to this more kind of like disease slash aa model where addicts are just sick people that have this built-in allergy and they're never going to get better and they're not really in control of themselves they're powerless and but we have ways of helping them out because they have this disease so it, it made it less amoral and more medical and biological which helped because you know looking at people as evil is never a positive direction in terms of helping them i having gone through my own experiences but also studying the hell out of it kind of paused at some point and said look we have a system that isn't working to help the people that we're saying that we want to help um there are, I, in my book, in The Absolutist Myth, I talk about a million different reasons why that is true, but there's only one number you really need to look at, and that is the fact that about 90% of people with addiction issues don't go get help. There's no other medical condition that's true for. And what we've done up to now is blame the addicts. But to me, that's like blaming, you know, we can blame football players for CTE, or we can blame uh, diabetics for consuming too much sugar and fat. It doesn't do us any good. In the end, I want to help the people who are struggling. I want to pause or maybe even put to put a stop to the fact that we're losing about 150,000 people a year to just overdoses, not to long-term consequences of addiction. And for me, that means you have to look at the entire problem again. We're losing this fight. We've been losing it for about the as long as we've been measuring it. What are some new ideas we can't think of and I get screamed at and called names on Facebook on a daily basis for suggesting that there are new ways of looking at it but you know if that's an end that that doesn't seem very controversial to me I mean I uh, was listening to a podcast recently with Michael Pollan and he points out the fact in his new book um, how to change your mind all about psychedelics yeah that our mental health system is badly broken. And if you compare that with just about any other category, the success rates are so low that why wouldn't people be open to new information coming out? Right. Now, I think I mean, probably the reason is because people have their egos attached to it. That's that's part of it for sure. Now, look, I mean, take Michael's book for a second. Um, talk about controversy, right? And he's so smart to position it that way. But even though chemicals have been used to address mental health struggles for as long as humanity has existed, we have decided over time, and it changes all the time, but we've decided... Like, we, we've got a garbage to- truck outside know, sorry, for people. Guys. Keep going, keep going. We're all right. Um, we have decided ourselves over time which chemicals are allowed and which are not. And it's kind of funny when you think about it for a minute, right? Um, because these chemicals that Michael's talking about, these hallucinogens and, uh, and mind-expanding kind of medications, they've been used by cultures for thousands of years in rituals, and yet those are the ones we've written off. Whereas taking an Ativan every day to help you with sleep we just accept. And what people don't understand about drugs in general is everything is a matter of dose, setting, sort of what, what is the context for what you're taking it, and the route of administration. And once those things interact with your body, you get an effect. And 
I don't know at which point we decided that. Um, wow, this truck is just going to no, stick good. around Keep for a going. while. You're good. You're I don't fine. know which point the, the we mics de- are directional, so it's good, very good. far in the background. I don't know which point we decided that we have this um, preordained ability to pick between good and bad for everyone. That's what scares me, right? Is Ativan as a benzodiazepine that helps people with anxiety can do really good for some people and it's terrible for others Tylenol can kill people and has and has caused more deaths from liver toxicity than most people listening to this right now have realized ever in their life right drugs are not good and bad the way you use them how much you use them, and and um who the person is that's using them in that context that's what makes the determination so he is dealing with mental health. I'm dealing with addiction. And I'm saying, stop looking at the freaking alcohol and the Coke. That's not the fucking problem. That's never been the problem. Talk to the people and try to understand why they feel the way they feel and go fix those issues and we'll be doing much better. Right. So if I came to you uh, as an addict, um, saw your website, haven't been able to get help, been embarrassed to, I mean, you talk a lot about shame, which I'm so yeah. happy that you do because there is I think that one of the darkest corners of the opioid epidemic is that when some mother's kid ODs they have to feel shame about that rather than bringing this to the surface and making most people letting most people know that you know four out of five new heroin users started with oxy and that pill party it's, man it's now the leading cause of death among young people uh, ahead of car accidents everything and it's and so all insane. accidental death. It's, it's, so insane. it's the leading cause but, of accidental death. Right, but if your kid dies of a car accident, it's not embarrassing, right? So I think that that's it. it holds us back when we don't talk. I about I met this, this woman at a talk I gave in Ohio, which is one of the epicenters of this opiate crisis, who afterwards came to me because she was she had had three sons. She lost two of them to heroin, and she had one who was now addicted to opiates. I mean, just talking about it right now makes me kind of shiver. I have three kids. I can't fathom. I would go on a rampage. Like, I, I think I would might go shoot drug dealers in the street just, and, and that wouldn't impact anything, right? That wouldn't actually help my kids' drug addiction problem. But I would lose my mind with anger, frustration, fear, sadness at something like that. And she was there because her third kid was now in Suboxone, a medication that is used to maintain people who are addicted to opiates so that hopefully they won't have to go get drugs, illegal drugs on the street, et cetera. And people in the program in traditional meetings that he was going to were telling him to stop because that meant he's not sober. And she came to me and asked my opinion on it. I said, is he okay on the medication? Is he doing all right? Is he not using or is he not using as much? See, yeah, he's doing okay, but you know, everybody's telling us that he should get off the medication. I said, fuck everybody else. You've lost two kids when you tried to do this traditionally. I can't fathom what that feels like right now. But the main thing is keep that kid safe while getting him whatever help he needs. I I imagine that losing two brothers to heroin would wreak havoc on this kid's mental well-being anyway. And to throw shame into how he's functioning with it on top of all the struggles he's going to is fucking insane. Like, there are people, I know people in AA meetings right now as we speak who are telling everybody they're sober they've been sober from alcohol or heroin for like a decade they smoke weed in hiding why? because they can't talk about it because if they talk about it in those meetings people will make them feel like shit about it they've been doing it for 10 years and nobody knows and it's fine but they can't talk about it and that is fucking insane to me that 
this disease is killing people. This condition, this whatever, this disorder is killing people. And you're going to tell me about what the right way to address it is? Fuck you. You're not the one who just, you know, like, it's my kid or my life that's on the line. Whatever works, works. And so if it's ayahuasca and ibogaine that helps you, all the more power to you. If yoga is the thing you discover, that's amazing. If you found a way to moderate your use and you're not completely abstinent, but you're hanging on, hallelujah. I think it's it's time we all came off our pedestals a little bit and stop pretending like we know everything and stop letting fear dictate how we do it because the reason people go to this traditional model so much like what is wrong with you your son died of a heroin overdose is that internal process of their but the through the grace of god go i right like if i alienate you if i make you seem like an other then you're different than me and that can never happen to me and it's just, it's bullshit. Right. So if I came to you and I had an opioid addiction, what are the first questions that you would um, mm. ask me? What are the first questions that I should ask myself? That's a great, great question. Um, I first try to get people at ease. And I would say that's probably the first kind of thing that I try to do. And that, that normally just starts with what's going on in life. Just getting a really clear understanding of what's happening for you. Not forget drug use for a second, but just in life, what is happening? And get a really good understanding of somebody's, the way I talk about it in the book, is somebody's environment, psychology, kind of past experiences, and uh, spirituality in terms of purpose and what are they connected to, and then biology. What feels okay and not okay in your body? What's your environment like? What has your life been like up to that moment? Um, when I get in deep with people, I normally try to figure out where it turned for them when drug use started being a coping strategy for them. Not everybody knows right off the bat, but most people have an idea of the kind of the roundabout time in their life when that started. And to me, that's a really important point to start looking into because there were some issues that were unresolved at that time in their life. And uh, I can go through some examples of people that I've talked to where they even forgot that that is why they started using the drugs. I'll talk about weed because people think weed is not an issue, but about 10% of users really struggle with weed, even though it's just marijuana or whatever. But I had this woman who came to me and she said every time she tried to stop, her appetite would get destroyed. She couldn't sleep and she had really bad GI issues. And so she would throw up and all this stuff. And we started, so she couldn't stop. She stopped all the other drugs, but she could not stop weed. We were working together for a little bit through this online course I do. And um, at one a couple of weeks in, I got to ask her the question, like, when did this start? She couldn't really remember. And she went home and she thought about it. And what she remembered was that as she started in high school, she was on a debate team and on sports and a lot of sports. But she was known as the girl who would throw up before every event. So she was so anxious around performance, so... Eminem style. Yeah, <laughs> right? Totally, right? Like, go to the bathroom and throw up. <laughs> yeah. And the way she would tell the story, talk about shame, is the bus that would take them to meets would know to hold on and not go until she threw up, because otherwise she would throw up in the bus. Now, again, that's just a story the way I tell it right now, but think about being a 14-year-old who throws up before every debate you go on stage for and every meet, and the whole team knows they got a way for you to throw up. That's embarrassing, and it makes you stick out, and nobody wants to stick out in high school. It sucks already. So one day, one of her friends comes up to her and says, hey, um, if you smoke a little bit of this, it'll make the, the nausea go away, and you won't throw up, and it worked. So from the age of 14, she smoked before every meet 
before every debate, before every time she had to do something publicly. She kept that going for so long that it just became part of her life. And she forgot that that's what it served for. When we got to that, we started working not on her weed, but on her anxiety around other people. What What is it that goes on in your head before you have to go speak in front of others that makes it so unbearable that you want to go throw up? That's the thing we needed to fix. And when we fixed it, not only did she, was she able to like not be a daily weed smoker anymore. It's not a problem to the point where a couple of times a year she still smokes. A couple of times a year she still has a drink. But she's not running away from being embarrassed and ashamed around other people. And so it's it got solved. And I'm not saying it's that easy to find for everybody, but that's just an example. And if you can get to that core and fix whatever the drugs and the alcohol or the porn or whatever it is fixed for you, if you can fix that core issue, you will all of a sudden see that all these other symptoms are not as problematic as you thought they were. Yeah, I I like what you said there about asking what the drug gave her because so often we see the drug as the evil thing. Yeah. Um I, I think this is a Gabor Mate quote, but he talks about like what what purpose did the drug serve? Always. Right? And, and he's a physician up, and it's like medicine. What right. what was the medicine? Yeah. And whether that's porn or weed or heroin. Um it's we're trying to the user is trying to use the drug to solve a problem. So what is the problem? Totally. And, and porn, by the way, is a great example because I think we're going to, I have nothing against porn, but the way a lot of kids, like 12, 13 year old boys who discover porn use it, it's an escape. It's a way to not have to put yourself out and not have to have that scary, real intimate experience with an, you know, with a, partner you're attracted to and you always have porn to kind of go back to and now it's so easy to consume that you don't even have to it's like candy land there's a category for everyone <laughs> it's insane and so i think we'll learn a lot more about that over the next five to ten years yeah um do you then do you at what percentage about would you say that when people get back to that core issue that the drug was helping to solve what percentage of those people would you say um go back to their parents, their relationship with their parents? That's a really good question. I have to think about it because I don't think I've ever run that. Um, Would you say it's a lot, a little? What? It's a I large mean, percentage. I mean, the anxiety. Or that, that at least that plays a role. I don't know if it's right. always the predominant role, but it at least plays a role, no doubt. Right. Yeah, I uh, grew up in Santa Cruz. I have three friends that I um, was really close with growing up and... Um, all got addicted to oxy then heroin i saw that it was we were surfing every day and then all of a sudden they start um they started taking mole hits that was big in santa cruz you know what a mole hit is uh-uh. so it's it's a bong hit with weed and tobacco and it gives you these kind of spins and it's the it's the disgust if you think bong water smells bad mole hit water is like oh. the, the dirtiest swamp but then they got <laughs> they went from there to uh to oxy quick from oxy to heroin and uh one of the kids that i grew up with he always got made fun of the most like surf culture and um in santa cruz is very kind of territorial there's a lot of hazing and that kind of thing and we always grew up with this belief they're like oh you got to be hard on kids because it'll help them get strong toughen toughen them up but i'm now noticing a correlation between the kids that got teased the worst and uh drug addiction yeah i mean look i think it gets back to that shame right shame is such a core feeling if you think about it shame when we were small tribes 
was used to keep people in line. You didn't act inappropriately because if you did, it was a real survival risk for the group, right? So if you screwed things up for the rest of us, we might not eat or you might die because we will ostracize you and you will be outcast and you might not survive on your own. So it was, there was a real survival risk to it. And I think the emotional core of that is still kept. And so when that happens to a kid in a surf culture, that kid is scared for his life in an almost primal way primal real way um naomi eisenberger at ucla was doing research she's a fmri um social neuroscientist and one of her seminal papers is around the fact that physical pain and emotional pain are processed essentially in the same way in the brain and your brain can't really essentially tell the difference between your heart being broken because somebody dumped you or your friends making fun of you at school and bullying you and breaking your leg like it's it's processed from the emotional standpoint in the same place in the brain. And so we have to deal with it, right? I have to deal with a survival risk if my group of friends doesn't accept me. And there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, But one of the ways for sure is by numbing the pain. And that's why opiates are so big. That's why benzos are so big. That's why um, alcohol are such drugs that people get addicted to because they're painkillers. I mean, at their core, they reduce brain activity. And so the pain gets diminished, right? Opiates literally try to block the pain. Alcohol numbs it and and benzodiazepines numb it by just releasing uh, more or activating GABA more, which means that the brain is just less active and you're less worried about it. But that's what they do to you. And so what I hear in that story that you were telling about your friends, first of all, all the friends were kind of looking for ways to alter their mind, right? that spinning feeling that you were describing oh, for sure for younger kids especially they want to experiment with mind alteration and that was a way to take weed another level right it's just like oh my god now i'm even more messed up than i was before um, and there are a subset of kids who will experiment with more and more things and go harder and harder you add on top of that feeling less than feeling inappropriate feeling anxious and now you really need to numb out and the trouble is that we don't live in a society you talked about the mental health thing from Michael Pollan's book, et cetera. And um, we don't live in a society that acknowledges mental health struggles, that knows how to deal with it, that has accepted the notion that at, at its core, we all struggle with mental health. It's more of an issue of where on the spectrum of mental well-being are you at this point in time? Because your own struggles ebb and flow. And if we got to that place and that kid would have a way out of saying, you know, would have some format to go to someone and consult and talk about what's going on internally for them. But the world we live in, not only for men, but for women as well, um, is that world of just sublimate, reduce, ignore, sweep under the rug and just move on with your life. And then people get in trouble. Isolate. Yeah. Yeah. So if I uh, were in this session with you, I was an addict. What uh, you you referred to uh, social groups a lot yeah. in um, what you just said. What kind of questions would you ask me around social groups and what role do social mm. groups play in our decision making? I think maybe what's important is so the my system kind of ignited recovery that I created rests on three principles. And the first one is honest exploration. The second one is radical acceptance. And the third is individualized transformation. Um, 
I think most people try to start with the third part. Like, what tools can I use to make myself feel better? Right. I always say people, you got to figure out how you got here first. Because you don't even know what trouble you're coming to me with. I just had a, right before we met, I had a 30-minute call with two people who were trying to help a brother. The call started about he's addicted to meth and he's destroying my family. It ended with he was a married man with a baby who came out as gay at the age of 36, living in uh, the Midwest. And I said, hold on, guys. Like, we're not talking about meth. We're talking about your brother whose life's, life got upended about seven years ago because he had to come out as gay after achieving everything. He was a successful businessman, living a family life that made everybody proud. And he had to leave all of that behind to come out. Your brother was in pain for 20 years before you realized he was in pain. That's what he needs to talk about, not about meth. Meth is the thing he's using to be able to get over the pain that's going on in his brain. If I keep talking about meth, I'm just one of the people supporting the problem. So you asked about social circles. I need to understand what standards, what beliefs, what ways of looking, what perspectives about looking at the world have been indoctrinated into you. Because I can almost guarantee that if I'm sitting in front of somebody, some of those, not all of them, but some of those, and some of the seminal ones, some of the really important ones, have run counter to the way that person relates to the world. And the shame is defined as what happens when your internal compass, your internal moral compass, doesn't fit the rules you're getting from the outside world. And so you feel damaged because everybody is telling you you should be a certain way, feel a certain way, act a certain way. And you don't, that doesn't resonate with you internally. And so shame is the feeling you have about there's something wrong with me. I'm damaged. Not I'm doing something wrong. Not I'm, not I'm screwing up. Screwing up is not shame. That's guilt. Shame is I am wrong. I am damaged. And I need to understand where that came in for you. Because once we get to that, almost inevitably people will break down and just go like, oh my God, I thought that was real. I thought I, thought I was fucked up. I thought there was no way to fix this thing. And I go, okay, at least now we know what we're dealing with. Now let's figure out if it's fixable. And that's the power of what you do. You're explaining the situation better to them. And by them seeing it, seeing their life through a slightly different prism, they can overcome it. Yeah. It can be as simple as explaining that concept to them. That's all it is. We have a video um, we're going to start showing. I have a friend of mine. uh, His name is Ben Shine, and he's an artist, a visual artist. He does this really insanely cool stuff. I'll, I'll share the link with you. It's um, He takes fabric or, um, or netting and he forms it into these 3D sculptures, right? And so it's gorgeous. I'll show you some pictures. You can post some pictures on this uh, for people to look at. The amazing thing about it is the angle at which you look at this piece of art from completely changes what it is you see because if if you're front facing you see what he meant for you to see so a beautiful face or um you know or a, a landscape he does mostly faces but like but if you look at it from a different angle it just looks like hanging net or fabric it looks like nothing and i think the same exact thing happens in life there are nearly no objective truths there might be some i haven't found any yet but there might be some objective truths out there. Most of them are a matter of perspective. What do you mean no objective truths? In the way like, I see the world, right? So right. like when I look out, 
I see you, I see, you know, Maddie sitting over there and we're, we're right. hanging out here. Uh, my perspective on the world, my experiences up to this point in my life dictate what I see around me. Right. And they color my experience. Right. But that's different than fact. Like you are older than me. Is sure. It's an objective truth. Well, so again, yes. Right. But, but again, I mean, it depends. My, I don't believe in reincarnation. So yes, right. that is true. <laughs> yeah, but right. if you believe in reincarnation, that's not even true. Right. So it's Does all, that make sense? Yeah, like, it does. Perspective is everything. Everything. I mean, there are people who believe we all live forever. So your soul, my soul is, and I'm, I'm not one of those people, but it's all about perspective in the right. end. And so when a person comes in uh, and sits in front of me, the first thing I have to do, my job, and it's the thing I love most about the work I do when I get to work with people one-on-one, is I have to suspend my perspective on life. That's the starting point. I get to bring it back in later when it's time to help them. But initially, I have to understand theirs. Yeah, I would imagine that that's uh, an interesting challenge that you get to play out every time you meet with a client because you are um, talking to them about non-judgment and non-labeling, and you need to suspend that judgment and All that label like in your own mind as you're talking with them. All the time. That's why, I mean, you know, it's kind of this cliche, right? Like being the son or the wife of a therapist or a counselor does not make for a peaceful it's not like everybody in our house walks around all the time saying i'm considerate of your feelings and thank you so much for sharing with right. me that's not how it works because in my life i have my own biases and judgments etc my job with a client is to suspend all of that how because do you if, go for it how, how, how do i do it yeah um first of all i think i'm really good at it there's just something my wife and i were talking about this recently i have a lot of empathy but not sympathy i uh <laughs> A little, a little uh, view into my my relationship. My wife asked me a little while ago. She's like, "Do you feel compassion?" Because she was going through a really hard time, and I go, "I do, but I don't feel your feelings right now. Like I, I see what you're going through, and it makes me hurt that you're struggling, but I'm not feeling it." And my wife is really, she's like an empath. Like, if somebody is struggling in front of her, she starts crying. I don't think I could do my work. If that was my world. Right. I, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like being a surgeon. Yeah. Like you, you need to, uh, like separate, uh, separate it a little bit so that you can get the job done. So I can sit in a room and I'm good when I'm centered. And that's part of my job around organization and really blocking off time. Cause if I'm not focused then this goes out the window and I suck at what I do, but if I'm focused and it's probably the same around surfing, right? Like if you're honed in on what you're doing, you mu- are much better at it. And so when a person, especially a new person, is sitting in front of me, it's just about asking questions. It's just about really trying to get them to tell me who they are. Because then I'm helping them. I'm not helping the version of them that I would like for them to be, right? I, I know what client I want to deal with all the time. They're like 25, 26-year-old guys who have screwed up their life. That's my story. Who have screwed up their life up to that point. They're ready for change, but they don't really know how to do it. And they're just eager for somebody to show them the way. That would be ideal for me. That's like 15% of my clients. They come in all shapes and sizes and forms and experiences. And my job is to figure out where they are. And then if I'm good at what I do, to pull from the tools that I have and say, okay, well, based on how I see the way you explore the world and your perspective, I think this is something that would really be useful for you. And then not have preconceived notions about what they should do with it, but rather say, does this seem like it works? And then we try it. And if it works, then it's amazing. When you get to see somebody actually transform, you're right. 
I get to shift their perspective. And when I show you this video that you're, you'll share with your people, I'm sure after I show it to you, you'll understand. It's like when you can do that, when you can start looking at everything in your life, just at like a five degree angle difference, all of a sudden you stop blaming your parents because you know what? Your parents are the damn best they could. They might have sucked at it, but they did the best they could. Why? Because they had their history and they had their struggles. And if I'm not looking to blame them anymore, but I'm looking instead to understand what they did to me and how I can adjust that, then now that's something I can wrap my head around. Um, you know, Jay Shetty, do you know Jay Shetty? No. He's, a, he's a, an ex-monk who's now really created a big impact around uh, mindfulness and meditation and, and happiness and exploration. And um, he shares a lot of content that is all about there's a difference between recognizing the impact of people in the past and blaming them for what they did to you. I'm really big on the first. You know, let's let's really understand how we got here so then we can really know our our worlds and uh, and focus a little bit less on who's responsible for it. Right. I love your story about the art piece, too, because the the key to that story is the surprise that you get yeah. when you shift your perspective. And I would imagine that in your job, you have to to welcome surprise. Oh, totally. Right. Both for me and like the client. For, to, yeah. For you and the client to not have that judgment is that when I sit down and then I tell you something about myself that is surprising to you that's the only thing that you're that like what are you looking for rather than if you're if you're not looking for surprise then it makes it much easier to uh fit me into a box yeah yeah yeah. and and maybe even to expand people's expectation of what they can get out of our work because a lot of times people come to me to fix their addiction or to fix the relationship problem i go i can't fix your relationship I can help you understand what's going on and then give you some tools so that hopefully you can fix it. This is not, this isn't carpentry. I'm not like, I can't put a nail in you and, and change things. Right. And, um, what is interesting in my experience is even though I hope for those huge transformations, I can't come into the session really just hoping that today's the day that they have it. Maybe again, in the same way that, you know, if you go, is it all, is it mostly big wave surfing you do? Uh, well, the waves don't always get big, so yeah. I so you surf. hope. Yeah, See? you hope, but okay. it's kind of one of those things. Like, yeah, that's a perfect 90, example. Ninety-nine percent of the time, I'm it's surfing nothing. little waves. So that's a perfect example right. of what I'm about to say. Right, you're a big wave surfer. I am a transformer. I help people change their life, but you don't know when the big wave is coming. Right. So I need to hone my craft. I need to constantly keep showing up and doing as good a job as I can and be as focused as I can and learn new tools for myself so that when that moment is there and I'm in the room with the person and it's right there, I get to drop that nugget that makes it go, oh my fucking God, I never thought of it that way. And I'll tell you, I mean, you know, Maddie has seen some of the emails and some of the texts that come sometimes from people who've had that experience. I've now had dozens or maybe like upwards of a hundred of those emails messages from people I could die happy tomorrow because that's happened to people um, my hope is that I get 5,000 more of those 10 a million more of those in my life but when you get a person who's been miserable for 20 years and all of a sudden they go oh my god I can breathe again that's it that's why I do this it's the it's the end-all be-all of my existence as far as um, as I see especially my work and, and yeah, my job is just to be there ready for when that happens. Uh, what have been some of the biggest mistakes you've made? Mm. 
What are times that you've you said something and you're like, ooh? Wow, that's a really good question. I've lost two people. There have been two people I worked with who passed away. Wow. Um, unfortunately, both of them passed away after our work together. And so probably one of the biggest things that I struggle with is I always feel like maybe I could have done something more to stick around. Because people have to want to change, but it's in my makeup to believe that if I would have said the right thing or would have been there the right way a week earlier, a month earlier, we still would have been working together. And I mean, in essence, they both took their own lives, one really directly and another one just kind of leaving Las Vegas style, just going as deep as they could into their addiction. And in both cases, it was absolutely about shame. And um, I don't know if it's something that I said that I regret so much as like, in retrospect, when you know that, you want to go knock that person's door down and go, fuck, I don't care if you don't want to talk right now, we need to talk. Um, I really... I think I've gotten pretty good at being transparent with people. And so I don't have a lot of oops moments because I'm really clear with the person as I'm talking to them that I'm not channeling some magical truth. I'm an observer and I try to be a really good job of observing what's going on for you so I can show it to you so you can decide what to do with it. I try not to make a lot of um, decisions for other people, but the ones where the people distance themselves and I respected that distance and then things went wrong are the ones that I beat myself up over. Do you still beat yourself up, up over those? No doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What does it sound like in your head? Um, I mean, I think we all have doubts. We all have inner doubts, right? And those, like when it's that person's birthday and one of them was really public. Uh, I mean, nobody knows that I was associated with that person necessarily, but um, the death was public. And so, whenever that comes up or whenever I hear it, it was a musician, whenever I hear one of his songs, um, it brings it back up because it feels, it feels like failure, right? Like it feels at its core, like I should have, this is what I do for a living. This is what I do. This is like my superpower. And so I should have been able to save that person. Even if they didn't want it, I should, there should have been some magic combination of words that I would have been able to figure out that would have made them stick around. And, um, yeah, and it's so it's kind of those when that comes up, there's a right. sadness that comes up and um and a lot of just regret. Right. The flip side of that though is that it keeps you hungry to yeah. help more people and and learn how to get better at it and have more resources and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um again, I think when you dare big, that shit comes. It's just we can all live really small lives that have near no opportunity for failure. I couldn't fathom surviving in that universe. I would just die internally. <laughs> Build a ton of resentment. Yeah, and just hate every morning, right. but just know that I'm safe in yeah. it, right? And so um, yeah. I want to be the guy. It's like almost like if you listen to one of those Jordan or like LeBron James quotes, right? Like I want to be the guy that when shit hits the fan, when somebody's having the worst time ever and nobody knows what to do with them, I want to be the guy who gets that call. But if I'm going to be the guy who gets that call, sometimes it's not going to work. And it's like an ER doc or like a heart surgeon, right? You have to get as good as you can. And then you have to show up and do the best you can in that moment. And you have to let go of the results because sometimes people die. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate your earnestness. I think that um, apathy and irony are so prolific in our culture. And they are 
guards against doing our best. Yeah. Because if you try your best and you really put yourself out there, you're going to fail sooner or later. You're going to eat shit and it's not going to feel good. But it does feel better than never having tried your best. For me, it certainly feels yeah. better than never having tried. Um, I don't... Again, like I could not fathom. It's never been my thing, but I could not fathom waking up in the morning and not feeling like I have to dare to do something. And we deal with this all the time. Like literally today, someone was yelling at me on on Facebook that I'm, you know, my methods are going to kill people. I'm like, 160,000 people are dying a year. Like, what are you scared that I'm going to screw up in this? We're fucking this up big time. Like, what... Where's the fear coming to you that something we're losing in this moment as you're speaking? And that's the way I look at it. It's always the way I've looked at it. Um, You you said that, uh, was it 75% of addicts don't seek help? 85 to 90%. 85 to 90%. Most of the time, uh, these addicts will come to a friend or a friend will come to them before they seek professional help. Is that correct? Yeah, or somebody will come and say, hey, I'm worried about you. You're right. Right. Um, what advice would you give to the friend of an addict? I love it. Um, I, so I talk about this in the book, somewhat from the friend perspective, but from a loved one for sure. And my recommendation would be go for the feelings and the struggle. Stay away from the addictive behavior as the main thing you're focusing on. So don't come to somebody and say, hey, you're using too much. I'm worried about you. Come in and say something like, hey, you seem like you're in pain. I'd love, to, if, if you need to talk about anything, I'm here. I see you suffering. I see this being a struggle. Um, what can I do to help? They're using the thing that you're trying to, that you believe they need to stop as help. It's the only thing that's allowing them to survive. If you start trying to figure out how to take that away from them, that's like, let's like taking a quadriplegic and saying, I need to take your wheelchair. And you may not understand it. You may see it. Again, perspective, right? You may clearly believe this meth is destroying your life. You need to stop it. They're looking at it like this meth is the only thing that makes it okay for me to live right now. And if you have that battle, you're going to lose every time. Um, sure, if you get them sober for a year and you get them to totally change your perspective, and then things can change. But in that moment, become an ally. Become somebody who's on their side saying, I see you using this stuff to try to just drown out something. I don't know what that something is, but I'd love to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Being an ally. That's, that's a tough one, man. I mean, I've, I think that's fantastic advice and it's so easy as the friend to get angry at the addict because, because there's, it's, it's difficult to look at it, um, from a disinterested place yeah and that feeling of like fuck man like dude, you- get your shit together that then can uh m- make them recede further away from you it's yeah. such an easy thing to fall into because they don't want to hurt you either right right so they'll just go oh I, I'm, I'm fucking up my friend's life or my family's life let me step away Right. I'll go away. I'll still I still need to handle my shit. I'll do what I need to do to get through the day, but I don't need to do it around them. I literally had somebody sitting where you are right now, by the way, yesterday, contemplating divorce for that exact same reason. He feels like he's such so damaging to the people around him that he would rather leave this woman he loves than cause her more pain. My answer is why not work together and see if you can help resolve the pain together because you're going to be isolated as fuck by yourself and it's not going to make your life any better right and as the friend so you have this initial conversation with them um 
the addict appreciates it. What's the next step? Is it just to continue to be an ally, continue to invite them to go work out, go get a healthy meal? Yeah, or feel, feel respected and accepted. And then when there's trust... You can start talking about, okay, how would we solve this? But again, if you're focusing on how do we solve the core struggle instead of the addiction, you're saying to them, like, maybe, I mean, if it's a heroin addict, for instance, one of the things to address is, like, safety. I hear, you know, look, I hear you're struggling, but people are dying everywhere. I just want you to not die. What do we do to that? I love you. I want to be here. I want to support you. I want to hold your hand through this. I'm just, I'm really scared. And again, you see how I'm owning it. It's not about you're going to die if you do this. It's more like, I'm scared. People are dying everywhere. I don't want you to die. What, What can we do? And start making it a conversation. And then when you have this trust, at some point be able to say to your friend, your partner, your son, your daughter, whatever, oh my God, I didn't realize that when you the, when we all bullied you, when we were like 10, 15 years old, it made you feel so shitty. I'm so sorry, man. The, the amount of just exhale that these people get to have by finally understanding that they're not crazy. They're not insane. That's This was a real thing that happened in their life. And you guys didn't understand the impact maybe, but it was happening all around them. And they were the punching bag and, you know, it was just kind of fun. It was, or they were an easy target. So everybody went after them. And to start understanding that that was actually part of you guys' way to make them part of the group and not to like, do you know what I'm saying? To get back yeah. to its core. Yeah. And apology and forgiveness are not skills that are taught in school. <laughs> uh, I mean, for sure not not around here, I would say in Western societies in general, but America, look at what's happening in this country right now around politics. It's like beat the other person up instead of try to understand them is the method. Right. Yeah. Where admitting that you're wrong and that you even have a capacity for growth is not seen as a quality that you would want. In, in that sphere, right? It's the CNN or, you know, the, these debates where it's like short form debates. It's just people screaming at each other until yeah. commercial break. There's no there's no genuine goal to come to some kind of uh, understanding. That's what I love about podcasts, by the way. That's why I um, I always like them compared to like being on the radio, which radio is better than TV. But it's, we've gotten so used to speaking, let alone social media, where all I see is a still image of like, a millisecond of your life. I truly believe that short of a very small percentage of people, like less than 1% of people who have such biological disturbances that they are unable to process things in the same way that, um, most of us can get along. Yeah. Most of us, if we really sat down and understood the conversation we're having with each other, we agree on way more than we disagree on. And, if we could get to that place in this country and the world in general, there would be so much less conflict because people are responding out of fear and defensiveness and doing the best they can to try to maintain their world the way that it is and create as little change as possible. And, um, the reconciliation feels good and we only have two modes is communication and violence. Yeah. So getting good at, apologizing, hearing each other and having that release is I think what can allow us to move forward. Um, we're Um, almost at an hour, but tell me a good story, man. I'm sure you got a a million of them of someone who you've worked with, um, where there was a happy ending. Yeah. I mean, so many, I have so many happy ending 
That sounds wrong. It does. It's so weird. Actually, yeah. That, they've why usurped, does happy they've usurped get, that yeah, word. Got, it got co-opted. I know. Like, I can't even say, I, I don't say like, hey, uh, you want to get a burrito? I'm like, yeah, me too. I'm like, wait, me too. Oh, shit. I can't. That's funny. Like that <laughs> like, phrase now. Like little phrases. No, I mean, I, I, I as well <laughs> would like to get a burrito. You've been offended by the burrito right? movement. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That reminds me, there was a good, really good friend of mine who was uh, uh, gay in um, in high school. And so whenever we would do directions, she wouldn't say it, go straight. She would say go forward because straight yeah, meant something yeah, different. Right. It's so ama- Again, perspective, right? It's so amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, have, I have a few that are probably amazing. But one of the ones that I share with a lot of people is a woman who came to me when I was, I, was, I co-founded a rehab that helped people even if they weren't ready to abstain. And that was a big thing for us. But this woman came to us after having gone through four rehabs. She was in a sober living after the fourth one. Wealthy family in Orange County. Her family had spent upwards of a million dollars at that point on her recovery. But whenever she left, within a day or a week or two, inevitably she would relapse and all the wheels would come off. And now she was an Ivy League University graduate, had done really, really well in high school. And then after graduating high school, the world fell apart. She was 28 by the time I saw her. She couldn't even sit down in a chair for 30 minutes because of chronic back pain. And she would go on smoke bakes and then disappear on me for three hours. And um, fortunately, it was early on in my career, so I had a lot of time to work with her. And she had six clinical diagnoses, three addictions, uh, weed, alcohol, and nitrous oxide, and three mental health diagnoses for bipolar, borderline personality disorder, and generalizing anxiety disorder. Like Everybody pretty much was hoping that this woman would just be able to function and survive until old age. Um, we did a lot of work, discovered a lot of these early demons for her bullying. She was overweight in high school. And so even though she was part of the popular group, she was always the outcast of that group. Wealthy family, but her dad drank a lot and screamed all the time when she was young. Her mom was like a tiger mom. That was a lot of risk around that. What does that mean? Uh, like overbearing helicopter mom who like, you have to do everything perfectly or you're a failure. She went to an Ivy League school and so did really, really well, but had deep anxiety and panic her entire life that she was going to be a failure. And when she graduated, she couldn't even fathom going to grad school because the concept of failing at something again would just destroy her. So she went off the deep end, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, tried to drink and take nitrous oxide to get rid of those things, creating a nightmare. Um, We worked together for a year. And after we worked together for a year, she wasn't fully sober. She was still drinking a little bit here and there. She was still smoking weed almost every day because she lived with somebody. Talk about environment who smoked weed all the time. But she went away and things were much better. She lived away from her parents. She had a, an apartment with a roommate and had a job, a full-time job, which she had never had before in her life. And about six months to a year after that, she reached out to me. I check in with people relatively frequently, but she reached out to me to see if I could write her a letter of recommendation to go to graduate school, which she couldn't even talk about in sessions beforehand. She would just start crying. And I said, of course, can, I, can you tell me a little bit more what, what's going on? And so it turned out she stopped smoking weed on her own because that roommate moved out and she didn't like the weight of feeling her anymore. She still drank, but like a couple of drinks a month. And she really wanted to go back to school. She was applying to schools all over the country, including New York. And like for this woman who couldn't sit on a couch for 30 minutes, moving to the other side of the country from her parents was unfathomable. I was excited for her. We kept in touch every few months. We would text. She got into NYU is going there for graduate school right now, is now actually, she finished that and is on the next phase of getting her hours because it's clinical work. And when I check in with her, she's just normal now. She says there's ups and downs. I still get anxiety every once in a while, but I have tools because of you guys to uh, to fix it because the team at Alternatives did really great work with her. 
and and I'm living my life. You know, I'm I'm working in something that I'm passionate about. I'm good. It's not perfect, but but life is really good. And the reason I love that story is when she walked into my office, our office back then, she was the quintessential example of that person who's going to struggle forever. She's the addict. And the way we think about addicts, right? She's going to she's been in and out, nothing is helping, she lies all the time, unmotivated, all that stuff. But when you lower the guard and start helping and working in collaboration with somebody instead of expecting what I know is true for them, it's the most magical things happen. And again, even to have one of these examples of somebody whose life was seemingly destroyed, live what she calls now a normal life is magic. My man, Adi, you started your own podcast. People need to listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. So we have the Ignited podcast uh, that's spelled I-G-N-T-D because I thought it would was clever and I was going to take away some vowels. So IGNTD is ignited and we have a relationship podcast and a recovery and mental health podcast. So, um, yeah, and what's, check your, out. what's your website? Uh, ignited.com is the main website. And if you look up my name, there's a djaffy.com as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Man. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song by King Rom called Hazar. And King Rom is a previous guest. Uh, He was back in episode 115. It was one of my favorites of all time. He's an Iranian activist and musician. Here's a quick clip from episode 115 if you want to scroll back and listen to that one. Um, My dad got a phone call. You have to come to this police station. You know, you have to report in. We just want to ask a couple questions. And that's when I told you they put a bag around his head and they took him away. They compounded our car. They took the car away. Once again, if you want to leave me a voice memo, you can do that on your phone using the Voice Memos app and email it to info at kyle.surf, and uh, we would love to play it at the beginning. Uh, Just try and keep it under a minute. This is an ad-free podcast, so if you can donate, please do so in the link below, or you can uh, head over to my website, kyle.surf. That's where you can peruse any of my shit. And uh, I'll see you. At the MOFAs, December 4th, Inglewood, California, Uh, we have presenters like Matt Taibbi, Abby Martin, Chris Ryan and I will be co-hosting. We have comedians like Simon Rex, Natasha Leggero, Moshe Kasher, the Yes Men. They'll all be there, so um, tickets are still available at themotherfuckerawards.com, and you can meet and hang out with any of them. Dress to impress. It's a gala, and we are going to really celebrate some motherfuckers there's some good good companies we're honoring um and we just got the motherfucker award trophies so it's gonna be fun see you december 4th and uh hope you all have a great day hope you enjoy this rain that we're getting and get out in the water give someone a high five and um keep smiling because it's a beautiful world out there so here is a song called Hazar by King Ram. Jardim
میخواستیم لحظه ای رو با هم از دست بدیم نمیخواستیم بدون هست از اینجا تنها بریم ببین حالا من و تو به کجاها رسیدیم چی شد از این خواب خوب 